Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully. Uh, I'll give you a second to get on the PowerPoint uh, for racial order. And actually, I kind of did a double. So this is going to be about racial order and foreign policy changes. So I'll give you a second. Okay, yeah, this is another one which is a bit more thematic than it is chronological. We're going to be skipping over a little bit with the chronology for this one. That being said, though, um, between the 1890s to like 1910-ish, somewhere in there, um, the United States really started pressing more for uh, a new racial order that really emphasized white supremacy, really emphasized white persons. And it's not just in the South. You might have heard like, oh, it's mainly in the South. It's pretty much all over the country, and particularly in the South and in the West. We talked about the West, we've talked about the South before, but we didn't talk too much about the racial component of it. Uh, that's changing today. And I'm really focusing on two main things here. Uh, so we go over one slide, you're going to see, we're going to talk about the West for a second, mainly about the Chinese. Now, as I said before, the, ra the West was a fairly racially diverse place. You have all sorts of different people. Uh, it's not just white people or cowboys and Indians or something. There's a lot of different groups there. African-Americans, Hispanic people, Native Americans. And you also have quite a bit of Chinese people. And these Chinese people are coming over in a fairly short amount of time. Uh, the first Asians in the West, the first Chinese people in the West, uh, they come over, their first occupation is uh, prospectors as part of the gold rush. Um, I'm not saying there were no Chinese people before uh, 1849. That's when the gold rush happens. Uh, you know, I think the 49ers, so the uh, San Francisco football team, that's the 49ers. However, there were not very many Chinese people in the West before this time. There were some, there just weren't very many. Um, in 1848, there were seven people of Chinese descent in California. Uh, that kind of mushrooms, uh, just because of the, the gold rush, goes up to about 25,000. Um, they're pretty much prospectors. So, you know, it's coming up quite a bit. That's the first number of the Chinese people in, uh, in California. Much more come over later on uh, for railroad work. Um, the, the thing you're probably most familiar with with Chinese <coughs> persons in the West is with railroad work. Uh, most of them would come over in gangs. They'd come over in gangs. Uh, the, the ethnic slur du jour for Chinese people at the time is coolie. Uh, they'd come over in work gangs, and uh, they were you know, brought over as cheap labor. Pretty much the Chinese were existing as cheap labor within the United States. Now, as you remember from our immigration uh, lecture, uh, that is a long-standing accusation against immigrants, is that they are undercutting the price of labor, and the Chinese were no exception in this regard. Uh, they were, you know, hired for the railroad work because the railroad work was fairly repetitive, but also they were the cheapest people doing it. Uh, they're fairly small in number, uh, quite small in number. These Chinese uh, work gangs are fairly small in number. Um, there's not too, too many. It is growing. Uh, they are mainly men. In fact, I would say 99 point, very long decimal point, um, are men. Uh, these are generally single men, just like other first-generation immigrants. They're coming over mainly to work. I would, I would hesitate to even call these people immigrants because there's really no desire whatsoever to settle down. Most of these, most of these uh, Chinese workers live in camps. Uh, they don't really buy property. They're pretty much just saving their money to go back to China. Uh, not a lot of women in their number, very few families. That's going to change in time, mainly because China starts going through some trouble. Uh, there's a lot of turmoil in China in this time period, a lot of political turmoil in China. Uh, because of the political turmoil in China, uh, in China now you're having more prospectors saying, not prospectors, uh, these workers, prospectors staying, of course, because they want to get gold. In fact, if you look at the, um, if you go over one to the picture, you're going to see some uh, uh, early Chinese prospector. Uh, there he is uh, with his dog. Yeah, I like that dog. It's a fun looking dog. Uh, notice he's dressed pretty much identical to all the other prospector guys. If you go over one more, you will see uh, some of these. They're also prospecting as well. They're prospecting as well. However, that's more in line with the attire that uh, most people assume of the Chinese in this time period. Remember, most of the Chinese who do come over earliest on are prospectors, but later on they're working for the railroads. Now, with the political turmoil in China, uh, there's more emphasis upon these Chinese persons staying. Uh, you know, there's no real desire to go back to China. Some of them start trying to 
you know, assimilate, not assimilate to society, but uh, really decide, you know, we want to remain in the United States for a long period. We're going to settle here. We're not going back to China. Now, the problem they hit up against is discrimination. Uh, discrimination comes up. Uh, it's, it's, it's good old-fashioned American discrimination, just like anywhere else, just, just like anything else. Uh, they are only allowed to buy uh, land in certain areas, if they're allowed to buy land at all. Uh, they're held out for most jobs because there's fear that they would undercut the labor price. So pretty much they're only allowed to have certain jobs, live in certain areas. Uh, something like this is Chinatown in San Francisco. Actually, I've, I've been to Chinatown in San Francisco. I was actually there last year. And it's a, it's a very, you know, it's, you know, nowadays it's in the dead center of San Francisco. But back in the day, it was, it was off the beaten track a little bit. It's, it's literally maybe like four or five blocks from like Union Square, which is like the hub of all of San Francisco. But <laughs> uh, in this time period, the, the Chinatown was a couple blocks away. And pretty much that's the only place they're allowed to live, you know, because of discrimination, uh, becomes a very insulated community, very insulated. Uh, most of these Chinese persons, you know, they didn't bother learning English. That's not unusual for immigrant groups. Uh, really keep their own culture, really keep their own customs, you know, uh, keep their own religion, keep their own uh, traditions. Uh, this is seen as also not great for immigrants. Uh, remember, that's one of the other old accusations about immigrants, in addition to them taking jobs, is that they don't assimilate into the culture. And these Chinese immigrants were no uh, exception in California. It was a combination of they weren't really allowed to assimilate into the culture, and because they weren't allowed to assimilate into the culture, they didn't try, which in turn... Uh, many people say, hey, we're not going to let them assimilate to the culture. Very much a vicious cycle, very much a chicken and the egg sort of thing. Uh, however, you do start having more Chinese people come. You start having more Chinese families. You start having more Chinese people being born in the United States, uh, which does make them citizens, according to the 14th Amendment. And then they really start just growing. Because these, ins these communities are so insulated, because they're so exclusionatory, because, you know, because the rest of society is exclusionary, they're trying to make their own thing, and they start opening up their own businesses. And that starts causing some conflict with the, um, quote-unquote, Native Americans, not Indians, but, you know, uh, white people who claim that this should be an area for them. Uh, there are a lot of riots and protests against the Chinese. Uh, for instance, in Los Angeles, in 1871, you have the Chinese Massacre. If you go over one slide, you're going to see some pictures of the corpses. Uh, this is the largest mass lynching in U.S. history, where anywhere from 17 to 20 Chinese people are killed in one incident, incidence of lynching. Uh, we're going to be talking about lynching in just a second when we talk about African Americans in the South. Uh, way more African Americans were lynched than, than Chinese people. Don't, don't get it twisted. But if we're talking for one single event, one single event, the largest number of people lynched in one single event is the L.A. Massacre of 1871. Likewise, you have the San Francisco riot of 1877. Uh, that's going to be two days of rioting. It kills four Chinese people, but does over $100,000 in property damage in 1877 money, so that's considerably more nowadays. Uh, once again, it's um, actually this one was kind of perpetrated by the Irish, who were upset with the Chinese for undercutting the cost of labor. Ironically, people were upset with the Irish for undercutting the cost of labor as well. You know, the, these, these riots are all over California, basically really saying that, you know, the Chinese are a threat to public safety, uh, they're, they're, they're a threat to labor. They're really demonizing the Chinese persons for this. In addition, you have less uh, insidious, less violent ways of discrimination against the Chinese. Uh, what I want you to know about is Wick-Yo versus Hopkins. Wick-Yo versus Hopkins is a legal case. It's a legal case. I mentioned that the Chinese were not allowed to hold a lot of jobs, in fact, most jobs within California society. Uh, one of the few jobs they were allowed to do was laundry. Uh, laundry. Remember in this time period, uh, the idea of having a, a washing machine in one's house was non-existent. It was something very opulent. You know, um, started out as a necessity from the labor camps. Just, you know, we had to have somebody to launder clothes. This grew on in time, and basically uh, it was one of the jobs, because it was viewed as so low class, so demeaning to do other people's laundry, they would allow the Chinese to do it. Uh, however, in time, the Chinese are getting, this is, you know, they get their avenue to get into American society, and so they're really pushing it. And some of them are getting big, some of them are getting quite wealthy. 
And so basically, Wick Yove versus Hopkins is one of these cases where the city, the, I'm sorry, the state of California passed a law which was discriminatory against Chinese, but they did it under the guise of public safety uh, when it comes to the laundromats. Uh, basically, they said that a laundromat had to be made out of non-wood material, specifically stone, uh, for public safety purposes. Uh, remember, they don't really have pipes or anything like this in this time period. Hot water heaters are done with like actual fire. If you have a wooden structure and fire, that could be legitimately dangerous. The thing is, though, these brick and stone buildings are considerably more expensive and your average Chinese immigrant could not afford that. And so basically, and this was actually upheld by the Supreme Court, saying that, oh, public, you know, discrimination is okay under the guise of public safety. Now, is it explicitly discriminatory? Not necessarily, because we're like, oh, it's public safety. It's, you know, we just have to have the, uh, you know, the laundromats be safe and not made out of stone. However, this was only really enforced against Chinese launderers. Uh, there were some white people who had laundromats that were made out of wood, it simply was not checked against them. This is one of those ways where the United States gets kind of creative about discriminatory with laws that are theoretically not racist, but are really only enforced on racial grounds. Uh, eventually, all the, you know, this causes more turmoil, more conflict. Uh, it eventually gets to the point in 1882 where the Chinese Exclusion Act is passed. Uh, this is the only time in U.S. history where immigrants from a specific country are completely cut off. This is the only time where one ethnic group is pretty much told, you cannot immigrate to the United States anymore. Uh, it is done theoretically under the guise of protecting labor. They basically said the Chinese people are coming in. It's bad for the United States. If you go over one slide, you're going to see some remarkable propaganda, which is straight up. Um, here we go. Actually, this talks about the uh, laundromat thing, too. It's Uncle Sam kicking, literally kicking out. Uh, Chinese people, the Chinese people you see, they're, they're drawn distortedly, like weird little pinhead things. It says that basically, uh, you know, we're going to wash it, we're going to clean the United States. It's a magic washer. Use this if you don't want to be dirty. The insinuation being that these immigrants are dirty people. Uh, another one of these, this is, this is equally, this is just horrible, really. It's really racist, very stereotypical of all the different uh, you know, ethnic groups coming together to build a wall against immigrants to the United States. These are you know, earlier ethnic groups. Uh, basically, what makes up this wall of discrimination? Uh, let's see, anti-low wages, competition, uh, commercial blunders, nonconformity, fear, laws against race, jealousy, all these things, which fear, you see fear several times, actually, all of which is like, hey, these are what we're using to build our wall against Chinese immigrants, you know, against all these immigrants. And look, it's the immigrants doing the work. You have all the different immigrant groups there. If you ever wanted to know what racial stereotypes look like for different ethnic groups, there you go. You got them right there. You got the Irish, you got a black person, you've got a Polish person. Man, you don't see that much Polish stuff around, do you? Uh, but yeah, no, there's all sorts of discrimination and racism against these immigrant groups. However, the one people that do get, you know, a law passed against them is the Chinese, Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Now, for African Americans in the South, there had been some uh, developments since Reconstruction, but in some ways, things were kind of the same. Most African Americans still lived in the South. Uh, most African Americans were primarily sharecroppers. That really hadn't changed too, too much. However, it is slightly hopeful. Um, a lot more schools are being opened. A lot more African Americans are getting a chance at education. Uh, more chance to get land, uh, get capital. You didn't have more um, land ownership by African Americans in this time period. Uh, there are banks and things that are actually having more access to capital for African Americans. Even though this is after Reconstruction, it's not like you have too many African American elected officials. In fact, you have no African American elected officials. But it is slightly hopeful. It looks like things might change. And this whole system really comes crashing down with a new repressive race system uh, called Jim Crow. Now, Jim Crow itself actually gets its name from a minstrel show. Uh, minstrel shows, it's basically the, the idea of blackface theater, where white people put on blackface and act in exaggerated, mannerisms, like, exaggerated mannerisms, such as an African-American person. Um, they burn cork, spray it on their face, smear it on their face, not spray, it's not spray, smear it on their face. That is... Uh, Basically, menstrual shows. Jim Crow is one of these songs and dance numbers. Uh, basically, it starts out as a dance, and later on, it kind of comes to name an entire movement, the Jim Crow movement. 
Now, the term Jim Crow for the space of this class refers to legalized segregation. All right, there's there are multiple components to this to this system. I mean, theoretically speaking, uh, Jim Crow has a lot of different elements to it. But for the main part, when I say Jim Crow, I'm mainly talking about uh, legalized segregation, segregation that is codified by law. Now, this is not to say there wasn't segregation or de facto segregation, uh, segregation outside of law over this time period. There certainly was. It was it was called slavery. Under slavery, African Americans were you know not allowed to leave their plantations. Uh, pretty much, you know, they existed only as uh, property of their slave master. You do have some free people of color, mainly around New Orleans, places like that. But by and large, most African Americans were combined solely to their plantation. However, with you know access to opportunity, with access to wealth, now that you know slavery has been abolished, this access to opportunity and wealth gives you more uh, people of color of means, people of color mainly with a lot more mobility. And most of the segregation comes from this idea of mobility. Because you don't need to segregate people you know, it's those who you may not, not who you may not know. You know, when you're out on the plantation, out in an agrarian area, you know all your neighborhoods. But in a city, you may not know your neighbors. You may not know who is quote-unquote good and who is quote-unquote bad. And that's what they really get into. It's this idea that we need legalized segregation because the old system of segregation doesn't work because we don't know everybody. Jim Crow legalized segregation is for those you don't know. Now, how does this manifest? Well, if you can see right there, go and slide, you're going to see... Uh, one of this, um, that is like a laundromat. We wash for white people only. But one of the biggest early ones, though, is um, with transportation. Transportation, and particularly when it comes to people of means. Now, transportation has been segregated by class for quite a while. I mean, you may not think of it like that, but you wouldn't really call it segregation. But there are different types of transportation tickets. You know, there's first class, second class, coach class, whatever. And that's how this works. Now, this is kind of complicated in a place like New Orleans, where you actually do have wealthy, you actually do have wealthy black people. Um, it's, it's kind of the exception, because in a lot of these places, uh, most of this transportation segregation actually happens in Philadelphia. Well, it starts out in Philadelphia, it goes later. But when you get to New Orleans, you just can't separate black from white because you actually have African-Americans of means who really don't want to be sitting with poor people, regardless of race. And so glumping them all together is not something that is really cared for. Now, this is ultimately challenged in a case like Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, that picture right there is sadly not a picture of Homer Plessy. It's actually a picture of PBS Pitchback. Uh, we don't have any pictures of Homer Plessy around. Sadly, we don't. Uh, we do know, however, that he is an octoroon. An octoroon is somebody who is one-eighth black, quote-unquote. Of their eight great-grandparents, one of them is black. Uh, Homer Plessy is a man of means. Like I said, that is PBS Pitchback, who is also an octoroon of means from New Orleans. Homer Plessy is the same way. And this is to be a test case. Basically, they want to show that the Jim Crow segregation laws are arbitrary and they don't allow for things like class. And also... For some people, you can't really tell what race there are. Homer Plessy was meant to be a test case. Uh, he is he gets on the train. Honestly, the only reason that the train detective, because trains have detectives for some reason, knows that he is a black person is because he overhears him talking with other black people before he gets on the train about how this is going to be a great test case. As soon as they cross state lines, very important you have to cross state lines because then you get into federal law. Uh, the train detective arrests him for basically violating, you know, by being a white per sorry a black person in a white section of a, of a train uh he argues however that he belongs in the first class cabin because he paid for a first class seat which is technically more expensive and he's a man of means this goes all the way to the supreme court it goes all the way to the supreme court a case called plessy versus ferguson maybe familiar with the name of it uh basically the supreme court decides you know it as long because it is the custom of the united states to separate people by race it's okay because it's something good if, however, it is separate but equal. That's the key phrase there. It has to be separate accommodations but equal accommodations. Now, theoretically, this actually screws over the train people because they need to make a you know, white first-class cabin or a black first-class cabin. A white second-class cabin, 
and you know a black uh, second class cabin and a bulk rate cabin for different races. Uh, in time, though, pretty much they don't even follow the letter of the law, which is it has to be separate but equal. This is one of the reasons why it ultimately gets overturned, is because it is rarely, if ever, equal. So this spreads across the entire South. Different states have different laws. Different municipalities have different laws. Like I said, you have de facto segregation all over the country, not just in the South. In fact, some northern cities are just as, if not more, segregated and violently segregated as southern cities. It's just, it's written into the law in a southern city. And when something is written to the law, it just hits a little bit differently. It just has a different level to it. Now, another part of this repressive system, there's a three-part system to it. There's legal, separate, there's legal segregation, and then there's violence. And a lot of it is just the fear of violence. Uh, don't get me wrong, there is a lot of actual violence, but because of the actual violence, it makes people, particularly African Americans, fearful of protesting against white authority. Remember, um, you don't have to actually do violence half the time. Sometimes the fear of force is just as, or if not more effective, than the force itself. Now, the primo thing of violence in this time period you need to talk about, and I'm going to give you a trigger warning right now. I will be showing on the PowerPoint some very disturbing pictures of lynchings, is the lynching. Now, a lynching in of itself is meant to give a message. It's not just an act of violence. And most lynchings in southern cities, in southern areas, they follow a very distinct pattern. They follow a very distinct pattern, a way of justifying it. Because whenever lynching happens, rarely if ever does the mob say, yeah, we killed this guy because he was black. I mean, that, that's why they do it most of the time. They kill somebody because they're black. Uh, there's always a rationale behind it, a justification, if you will. A reason they say, which is why we have to lynch this individual. In fact, lynchings get their start theoretically in the West. Um, in the West. A, a lynching is theoretically, it's an extra legal challenge. Basically, they're working outside of the legal system because they feel they don't have a legal system. Uh, in a place like the West, like in the frontier, where you may not have like, you know, police or a justice system or, or you know, attorneys or anything like that. Uh, just think of like cattle wrestlers. You know, we're you know we're gonna get a posse to string up that old cattle wrestler from the tree. That's theoretically where your first lynchings come from. Uh, the South perfects it. The South has a lot more of them, but theoretically, it's done in a place where there isn't law. Most lynchings are done basically as acting as a law. Rarely will you have a lynching occur in a city that has a justice system. Like if it has established courts. If it has established, uh, you know, police force or anything, you won't often have a lynching occur there. That's not never, because they do happen there occasionally. And it's not just saying, it's not even saying that that justice system is, like, fair. Oftentimes it isn't. A lot of times these justice citizens are just as racist as the placings outside. You have a lot of, you know, black folks killed for crimes they didn't commit, but it was done theoretically under the law. A lynching is not done under the law. It is acting outside of the law. But it's a gray area because they claim we have no law in this area. We want to make sure that justice is served. Now, a key part of any lynching is the accusation of a crime. Uh, like I said, they, they generally do kill people just because they're black, but they don't say that. They'll say, look, a crime was committed and we are carrying out justice because there is no justice in this area. Uh, the most common crime that would result in a lynching, and I, I would be using crime in air quotes, this is not legitimate, this is just what people say, is rape. Uh, rape is generally the crime that is most often associated with lynching, uh, mainly because like, unlike murder and other crimes, um, like those require a body. Like if somebody dies, you have a, a corpse. Uh, rape can just be an accusation. Uh, sometimes it is between individuals who have prior relationships. It could be a consensual relationship. Uh, a lot of times it's, it's nothing. A lot of times like the accused has no relationship with the victim whatsoever, doesn't know the victim, and so they, they get lynched, basically because they're accused. Now, before most lynchings, there is a trial. And I use the term trial, once again, quotation marks. It's not a real trial, because a real trial has, like, a defense, and, like, a judge, takes days, you have discovery, whole thing. Uh, these these are, are show trials. Basically, it's like, oh, you know, this, there's a rape that was committed. We found the perpetrator, you know, theoretically, we found the person who committed this crime, uh, they, they've been tried, they've been found guilty, and now we're going to issue out the sentence, which is death. Um, a good picture that illustrates this, if you go over to the PowerPoint, 
Um, second one, the first one's really disturbing because a lot of times they would take pictures of the lynching afterward. Uh, these were very much civic events. There were picnics. People would pose for postcards. In fact, what happens in a lot of these places is that they have the postcard of a lynching. Uh, this is one of those postcards. Go for one more. You're going to see a picture of the torture before lynching. Uh, see that, that sign on the gallows that says justice? Because theoretically, justice is being served out with the lynching. That is what they claim. They claim they are bringing justice to a place that doesn't otherwise have that. Uh, before the, very rarely is the accused just simply killed. Oftentimes there is torture involved. Um, generally with rape, they will do a castration of, of sorts. If you don't know what castration is, it's removing somebody's genitals. Uh, they would put the genitals in the person's mouth. They would just torture, burn, um, cut off appendages and things like that. Uh, very common to get souvenirs of sorts. It was very popular to get body parts of souvenirs, like a finger or something of the person they killed afterwards. Uh, very gruesome, very gruesome. But like I said, it was done as like a civic thing. It was done that, hey, we brought justice to our part of the world. Um how this results in this is basically it's meant to give a message. It's meant to tell the black community, stay away. Uh, you know, that, that is one way to make sure that segregation happens, not just through the law, but also of like, hey, one way to like not be accused of being, uh, you know, lynched or something. One way to do this is, you know, like being too friendly with a white person is not to hang around white people, period. Like they would straight up stay away from white people. They would just like, if you see a white person, you run the other way. This also kind of results in the segregation that the segregationists want. Now, let's say you're, you are in an area, though, where you have a black majority, because most of these lynchings happen in an area where it's a, it's a black minority that they can't otherwise fight back. But sometimes you have race riots that happen in places that are black majorities. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the Tulsa riot. that happens in 1921 in Tulsa. Um, if you watch Watchmen, the HBO show talks about it. But here's another one you've probably never heard of. It's in Wilmington, North Carolina. Wilmington, North Carolina is a prima example of this type of unrest. If you go over one slide, you'll see the Wilmington race riot. Around the turn of the century, Wilmington is the second largest city within the state. Um, it's the largest state with a black majority. There's about 20,000 people there, and it has a black majority. And this black majority, because they're African Americans in the majority, they have electoral power. Uh, they're able to like elect pack people into leadership. They have black members of the city council. The mayor is black. Um, it's a fairly decent area. Wilmington is. Now, the fact that you have black elected officials upsets some of the white members. Some of the white members of the society get very upset, the white minority upset. They actually take up arms on November the 10th, 19, sorry, 1898, about 2,000 white men and boys. And you can see in the picture, you'll see some of them are boys, like small children. They go around the town with sticks and guns, burning Main Street, you know, burning uh, black-owned businesses, killing about 100 people, and they force black business leaders and elected officials to board a train northbound, basically telling them, get out of North Carolina. Get out of North Carolina. These are duly elected officials that a white mob has taken over, killed 100 people. This is not really a lynching because they're not hung. It's not ritualistic. It's, it's a straight-up riot. Kill 100, send all the black officials outside of town into northbound trains, and just make sure this is done for racist reasons. Um, this new mob issues a new, all-new white city government, and they issue the, quote, Declaration of White Independence, as if there was any uh, question about what their motives were, if it was racist or not. Now, here's the thing. When the mayor of Wilmington, who's black, and some of the city officials go to the state, they go to the governor, they go to the federal government, because they go to D.C. and like, hey, we're the elected officials of this town. An angry mob overtook us. Uh, can we get some help? Because this is very much outside the law. Federal government and the governor do absolutely nothing. The mob gets away with it. The mob gets away with it. Now, another part of this racial order, which I don't really have a uh, slide for, but you do need to know about, is the convict lease system. Uh, this has to do with a loophole I alluded to when we talked about Reconstruction. Uh, basically, slavery was made illegal in the United States under the 13th Amendment, except as punishment for a and of course, all these individuals who really want to use black labor start making up all sorts of wacky laws to arrest black people and make them convicts, and their sentence is 
slavery. You might have heard the term, you know, they're sentenced to seven years of hard labor. That's the hard labor. It's pretty much working really crappy jobs. In a place like Birmingham, Alabama, which is a new city that comes about after the Civil War, they're in the mines. In fact, Birmingham becomes one of the major industrial centers of the South because of the mines, which are housed mainly by prisoners who are working for next to nothing. Like, literally next to nothing. In fact, they're even less valuable than slaves because, like, a slave you bought for property, prisoner, they could die. You, you, didn't buy a, you didn't buy a prisoner. You just bought their labor, which was dirt cheap. Now, this goes across, across the entire country. The idea of using prisoners for cheap labor is something that gets used in a lot of different places. But in the South, these prisoners are pretty much exclusively black, and they're very, very, very highly uh, abused. And now we get to the third part of this whole new racial order. And that's like, how do you prevent like a place like Wilmington from getting black government officials in the first place? You know, and this is where you get basically disenfranchisement, which is a franchise, which is a fancy term for just taking away somebody's right to vote. Now here's the thing with disenfranchisement. Um, let me get really sneaky about it. You know, to create a law exclusively about race, saying a certain race can't, isn't allowed to vote, that's against the 15th Amendment straight up. I mean, yes, Plessy v. Ferguson allows for some segregation, but the 15th Amendment says, hey, you know, people, you know, anybody can vote. If you're a citizen, you have the right to vote. So they have to think of ways that are like sneaky ways of saying how somebody isn't allowed to vote without breaking the law. And, and this is where it gets kind of ingenious, well, insidious. I don't even call it genius, because it's evil, but like evil genius, insidious. Now, the first state that really does this, and it gets replicated by all the other states, is the Mississippi plan. Mississippi comes up with it, and they come up with a bunch of different laws which are theoretically not against black people. I'm, I'm going to explain it, and you can see how, like, you know, an outside observer... I'd be like, that's racist, but the person doing it will be like, no, 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 it's not exclusively racist. It, you'll, you'll see. Okay, so for instance, a Mississippi plan, a big one is the residency requirement. It says that a person has to live in the same area for two years before they're allowed to vote in a place. Their logic is being like, hey, once you've been here for two years, you understand the politics, you understand what's going on, we don't want any Johnny come lately is voting here. Now that sounds okay, that sounds all right. How could this be racist? Well... Most African-Americans of this time period are fairly transient going to where there's work. Sometimes it's sharecropping, but a lot of them are expressing their, you know, individuality, freedom to move. Remember, you don't use segregation and this sort of thing in places where you know everybody. It's in areas where it's a lot of people, new, new people coming in, people you may not necessarily know. So the residency requirement, even though it theoretically sounds okay, it's pretty much really discriminatory against African-Americans. Same thing with the next one. No criminal record. Now, that's still a thing, you know. Uh, for certain felonies, you lose your right to vote and you can't get it back. Uh, some states let you do it, some states don't. That's not necessarily racist. But remember, thanks to things like the convict lease system, they've made all sorts of crazy things, you know, illegal. Uh, loitering is illegal. Like, if you're not working, if you're a black person just minding your business sitting somewhere, you could be arrested for not working, thrown into jail for hard labor. So even though, you know, no criminal record is something that seems okay, the people who are getting arrested are black people, and so they're not allowed to vote afterwards. Uh, the next thing is a poll tax. Once again, this is theoretically not racist at all. It's it's a, you got to pay money to make sure people are able to vote, you know, make sure you pay the poll workers, make sure the elections ride smoothly. You don't have to vote nowadays, but in this time period, they're like, eh, we want to have some money. Uh, why don't we just do, you know, a tax, so basically only those who vote have to pay it. Now, theoretically, it's a small amount of money for a rich person or somebody with means, um, I, just imagine right now if the price to vote was $50, all right, let's, let's just pick a number out of the, the air, $50, that sounds like a good number. You know, if you're somebody of means, if you're somebody who's got a good bit of money, $50 is nothing. You know, $50 is a meal, you know, $50 is a new pair of socks, that's nothing too fancy, uh, that's nothing to anybody. But if you don't have a lot of means, you think about that. You're like, maybe I don't want to vote. You know, is it worth $50 for one vote? And I don't think my vote means anyway. And that's what happens, because African-Americans in this time period, they're freed slaves, they are much, much, much less likely to have the amount of means to be able to afford a vote. It's a very high amount. It's not based upon the percentage of your own income. It's a flat rate, but because these black persons have less money, they're less inclined to pay the equivalent of like $50 to vote. 
Now, here's the thing. Like I said, this is not theoretically racist. Every single one of those things I justified, right? I justified a way that it sounds like, you know what? Sorry, my chair is squeaky. That's not racist at all. That's just good policy. But that's the evil genius part of it. You know, they claim it's for this other stuff. And, oh, you know, black people not voting is just a happy accident when that's the reason for it altogether. Now, many other states start emulating the Mississippi plan, particularly when it comes to poll taxes. Poll taxes come around across the country, mainly in the South, mainly done pretty much to ensure that African-Americans, who at this time period don't have as much money, don't have as much means as their white counterparts, uh, basically don't think it's worth it to vote. You know, the idea that you could vote, but it's 50 bucks might stop some people from voting. Now, other places come up with their own versions. Uh, Louisiana brings up the grandfather clause. Remember, Louisiana is a little bit different than most other southern states because they have black people of means. The Homer Plessys, PBH Pissbacks, um, you know, rich people of color who were never slaves. Remember, you have people in New Orleans, you know, Creoles, mulattoes, uh, that's a word for a person who's half white, half black, octoroons, quadrants, quadrants, person who's one-fourth black, who have money, like a lot of money, comparable to like any person of any race. Like they're just straight up rich. And they would satisfy all these things. You know, residency requirement, sure, they've been in New Orleans for hundreds of years, their family's has. No criminal record, well, they're rich. Uh, poll tax, they're rich, they can afford it. So to allow these people to vote, who were allowed to vote beforehand in Louisiana because they are rich people of color, Louisiana brings up what's called the Grandfather Clause. So the Grandfather Clause says if your grandfather could vote, you're allowed to vote too. This is a loophole that ensures that the rich people of New Orleans, the rich Creoles, the rich people of color of New Orleans, are able to vote. How well does this work? I'll tell you how well this works in Louisiana. Over the space of four years, so just four years, in 1896, Louisiana has 130,000 registered black voters. Black men, only men are allowed to vote in this time period. There are 130,000 black men who are allowed to vote. Most of them are formerly freed slaves, but you do have some rich people of color. How do I know this? Because after they pass the grandfather clause, the number of rich black voters, sorry, the number of black voters... So by 1900, just four years later, there are only 5,000 registered black voters in the state of Louisiana. I'll repeat that. In a four-year time period, you go from 130,000 black voters to just 5,000. Well, 5,320, but who's counting down to 5,000? That makes a difference. You just got rid of a ton of voters that way. You're down to like a fraction of a percent. Uh, not quite 1%, but like 3 or 4% of your old voter role of black voters. You know, what could be a decent-sized voting block, who might vote Republican or whatever, is now pretty much gone, and you're still able to appease the rich people. You know, this is America. We're all about appeasing the rich people. Uh, other states come along as well with other ones. Uh, proof of land ownership becomes pretty big. Proof of land ownership. Basically, proving that you own land in the area. How could that be racist? Well... Remember, most black people don't have a lot of money in this time period. Are there sharecroppings? And by its definition, if you're a sharecropper, you don't own the land. You just share a portion of it. So now it's saying, okay, you know, once again, it's theoretically not racist, but it has a racial impact. Same thing with this next one, the literacy test. Now, once again, this sounds good. This sounds fine and dandy. This might sound something you want to bring into place. A literacy test, who could have a problem with that? Well, here's the thing with the literacy test. Theoretically, at first, it was designed to basically make sure the person voting understood what they're voting for. Now, that, that might be a fair point. Uh, if you ever read some of like, the propositions or an amendment on a ballot, uh, whenever you vote, I mean, you're going to see you know, the, the candidates for office. So that's pretty easy to figure out. But I'll admit, sometimes some of those amendments or you know, those sort of things are in kind of weird language, different ordinances. They're very much legalese. It might be kind of tricky to figure out how, what they're, exactly they're saying. So first, they wanted people to understand, you know, what, what is this law, you know, what, what is this ordinance going on, you know, this, this amendment, what is that being asked? However, that is easy to loophole, you know, basically if one black person understands it, they can tell everybody else. So then they're like, okay, you need to understand the Constitution. Basically, theoretically, they will give an individual part of the Constitution, ask them to read it, and also ask them to explain it. Now, here's the thing. It's not like a lot of white people are getting a great, lot of great education, too. But 
if it's a white person, the Greta Star voter knows, they might give them an easy section. Like, you know, the First or Second Amendment. Those are pretty easy to understand. You know, hey, uh, what does freedom of speech mean? Well, you can say whatever you want. Or what does it mean to write to bear arms? Well, you can have a gun. Okay, cool. That's pretty easy to understand. What about some of the, like, later stuff in the Constitution? Like, not the Bill of Rights, but, like, the other stuff. Like, where it comes to, like, how senators are elected every other, you know, election cycle or whatever. That could get complicated. And so that's when the literacy test goes on. It's like, we want to have an informative uh, electorate. This had the double whammy of not just keeping um, black voters from voting, but also, like, the less educated voters from going. Uh, this wasn't enough for some people. Like, for instance, in Louisiana, once they figure out that people can figure out the Constitution, if you memorized it, they bring in this thing. It's like a 100-question test. It's designed to be done in five minutes. It said it's easy enough that anybody with a third-grade education could do it. But I want you to look at that. You know, in the space below, write the word noise backwards and place a dot over what be its second letter should have been written forward. There's one that says write the word backwards forwards. Draw a triangle with a blackened circle that overlaps only its left corner. Like, all this weird number stuff. It gets really tricky. Uh, draw in the space below a square with a triangle in it. And within that same triangle, draw a circle with a black dot in it. It's, like I said, it, it, it's very gotcha. If you have one of these, you get it wrong. It's pretty much designed explicitly to weed out black voters. Now, here's the thing. Just like all this other stuff, well, less than this other stuff, it's very insidious. Very insidious. Because it is saying, hey, we're not being overtly racist. It's just the happy little side effect that they're going to get racist stuff. Now, why does this all happen in the 1890s? Everything I was talking about was really coming about in the 1890s. Well, why does this new racial order really come in? Three things. Uh, the first one is scientific racism. And you can put scientific in quotation marks. Um, a key part of this is eugenics. Eugenics is just another word for scientific racism. The idea that we can use science to not just say what differences between races are, but also like a hierarchy. You know, it's not just like, hey, people of certain races look different. It's like people of certain races have different attributes, different, you know, mindsets. They have different levels of intelligence. This is all very racist. You have things like, oh, they look at the skull and be like, oh, if you look at the skull of a black person, it shows that it has a less developed frontal lobe and, uh, you know, they'll de demonstrate that they can't have higher thought. It, it's malarkey, and I was about to say something stronger than malarkey. I almost said bull malarkey, but you know the word I'm looking for. Uh, yeah, and the size of your brain has nothing to do with your intelligence. But still, it's this idea that, you know, we're not being racist. This is just science. This is just the natural order of things. You know, claims that African-Americans are lesser people, they're not as intelligent, more prone to, prone to crime, things like that, they need to be corralled. Second big part of why it comes about is a lot of it has to do with the federal government. Um, after Reconstruction, the federal government said, yeah, we're going to, you know, there's all these amendments, you know, the African-Americans should have civil rights, but we're not going to do anything about it. Uh, the federal government has pretty much signified it's going to do nothing when it comes to race relations in the South. When it comes to, like, ensuring that the 15th Amendment is passed, ensuring that people have the right to vote, ensuring that, like, people have civil rights, federal government's like, meh, we don't care. We're, other, we're interested in other things. But probably the biggest reason why this comes to play is because of this new generation of African Americans. A new generation of black Southerners who have no memory of slavery. Remember, by 1890, slavery has been around for 25, 30 years. Most of y'all aren't 25 or 30 years old. So you have no memory of anything before you were born. You know, it's the idea that, hey, how we can't just use the memory of slavery to control black people. We can't just use this is the way it used to be. We have to teach this new generation how things are. You, you see this a lot uh, after World War I or World War II, whenever African-American soldiers come back to the South, and they're told, you need to relearn. You've gotten too uppity or whatever. You, you need to relearn how things are. And that's what you have here. They, you know, it's quote-unquote, African-Americans need to relearn how things are supposed to be since they never had the memory of slavery. Now, to be fair, there are African-American responses to this. African-Americans do respond to it. One name that should be familiar to you because of the readings, and also, you should know this guy, Booker T. Washington. Uh, Booker T. Washington is a prime example of one of these individuals. Booker D. Washington, his background, uh, he is indeed born a slave. He is born a slave. Uh, he ha he's, a fairly, he's a fairly small child by the time slavery goes away. Uh, however, he is born a slave in the South. 
Uh, later on, he gets a chance to go to school uh, in the South. Different churches and other organizations start some of your first HBCUs and secondary schools for black students. Uh, later on, Booker T. Washington is invited to start his own school. He does. He calls it the Tuskegee Institute. Uh, Washington is very much into a practical education. Uh, students of his schools, they focus mainly on three things. Uh, farming is a big one, agriculture. Uh, normal, which is just another fancy word for teaching. And this time period, the term normal in education just meant teaching. So teaching and preaching. Preaching, uh, you know, Bible stuff. Those are pretty much the three things you could get a uh, degree in at the Tuskegee Institute. And he really pushes the practical stuff. He says, you know, it's, it, you know, considering where African Americans are in society, considering reality, they're best served getting a very practical industrial education. You know, get, getting them a trade, giving them something to do. He has a fairly famous speech called Up From Your Mop Buckets, where it's basically like, hey, if white society just wants you to push a mop, you know, just be a janitor, be the best god dogged manager you possibly can be, show, you know, show with industriousness, we're going to work our way to the top. He's not necessarily against segregation. He's not for segregation, but he's not necessarily against it. This is really demonstrated by a famous speech he gives called the Atlantic Compromise. He's at the Atlantic Cotton Expo, and basically he gives a speech to a mixed-race crowd. There's white and black folks there. Basically saying, hey, African Americans and white Americans need to act as like fingers on a hand, separate but working together. You know, he's saying we shouldn't go into white spaces. We shouldn't try to get white jobs. Instead, we should just focus upon, uh, you know, doing the jobs that they give us. If it's a mop, push a mop. If it's being a farmer, we should be farmers. And he's really, he's not for segregation. I mean, Booker T is called Uncle Tom by a lot of people, including the guy I'm about to talk to next, for how accommodating he is of segregation. But it's more like Booker T. Washington is saying, I don't want to change it dramatically. You know, when you read about what he's talking about fully, he's talking about like, hey, this is a all-black town. He's like, you know, we're, we're completely black, we're completely self-sufficient, you know, we're kind of stay away from white people, we don't want to agitate them too much, we don't want to overwhelm them, just show we're okay by our own merits. The Atlanta Compromise is quite popular with a lot of different people, uh, gets a lot of support, uh, Booker T. Washington gets a lot of support from white and black alike, particularly white people. Uh, later on, he will start using, funneling some of that money to more radical causes, but he's very much the face of, like, black respectability. In fact, he is the first black person invited to the White House for dinner uh, with uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Now, a lot of the African-American community do like Booker T. Washington. They do like his mindset. Uh, one guy who definitely doesn't is W.E.B. Du Bois, or Du Bois, whatever you want to call it. W.E.B. B. Du Bois, uh, don't even ask me what his full name is. It doesn't even matter. Uh, just call him Du Bois or Webb. Don't call him Webb. Never call him Webb. W.E.B. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois is a bit different. He's of a younger generation than Booker D. Washington. He is younger. Um, he's born in Boston. He has no memory of being a slave. Uh, he's born in Massachusetts. No memory of being a slave whatsoever because he wasn't a slave. Um, his parents were of a mixed-race couple. Um, his parents were a mixed-race couple. Uh, du Bois was never a slave. He was born after slavery was abolished. Uh, very, very intelligent. Very, very smart. Uh, he has a distinction of being the first person to get a PhD from Harvard. He got a degree from Harvard, and he will let you know about it. He would definitely let you know about his degree from Harvard. He would definitely let you know that he went to Harvard. He would later say that, yeah, I graduated from Harvard, and the honor was all Harvard's. Kind of this mindset, like, you know, he's... I don't want to say he thinks he's better than you, but um, just letting you know that, uh, you know, he went to Harvard, and that's a very fancy school to go to in this time period, especially if you're the first black guy who went to Harvard. Now, it's not as though Du Bois is against industrial education. He's okay with it. You know, he's like, it's okay if some black people are, you know, farmers and, and janitors and stuff. But he says that shouldn't be everything they're capable of doing. He says, you know, amongst African-Americans, there exists what he calls the talented 10th. He says, you know, we've got the black Mozarts. We got the black, you know, cancer cures. It does them a disservice to have them go anywhere but the best. You know, to have Mozart push a mop is, is a crime. It's criminal. 
And he says that African-Americans should have the same sort of opportunities as white Americans, the same sort of institutions. Remember, he went to Harvard. Harvard's a pretty damn good school. He went there, and he's quite excited about going to Harvard. And basically, he says, we should have that opportunity. He said, I would not have been served had I not gone to Harvard. I'm very smart. He's a very smart man, very smart sociologist, writes a lot of great books. These two dudes do not like each other, like, at all, at all, at all. They start breaking, uh, busting heads quite a bit. Uh, Dubois would later form, um, he'd be one of the key formers of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Um, this contention, though, like I said, it, they, they're, they're arguing that Afro-Americans have a place within American society, but what that place is is different. Uh, Booker T. Washington wants African-Americans to be okay with a little bit of segregation and also working a credit job at the bottom. Uh, Dubois is more for, hey, we need to give people the best opportunities, and we don't necessarily need separate institutions. He's like, we don't need a black Harvard. We have Harvard. Let's just have go to you know, Harvard if you're a smart black person. And mainly in, uh, emphasizing for Dubois that some people need the chance to go higher in the country. Now, this conflict between the two of them, like I said, they don't like each other too, too much. They will agree. They will, you know, collaborate on some stuff. Uh, now, the response of most African-Americans is very different things. Uh, some start moving. Some start moving. Um, this is not the Great Migration. The Great Migration is going to happen eh, probably after the test. It's around World War I. However, more African-Americans are moving away from farms to cities. Um, not that many. Uh, still, African-Americans are viewed as a rural southern phenomenon, uh, but they're becoming a little bit more urbanized. Places like Memphis, uh, New Orleans doesn't count because New Orleans had a b- large black population to begin with. But a place like uh, Atlanta, a place like Birmingham, Birmingham's a new city in this time period, you're having African-Americans move to cities from farms, uh, mainly for job opportunities, but also a little bit of a sense of safety in a weird way. Basically, you have more African-Americans there, and you also have a better legal system. Even though it's a segregated system, you could theoretically have your own place. Likewise, because of segregation, it does allow for the development of a black middle, uh, I hate to word the, use the word upper, because it's not like as upper as white people are, but definitely a black middle class, a black professional class, like, you know, doctors, lawyers, store owners, things like that. You are able to have that in cities. Uh, like I said before, this is not the Great Migration, but it is definitely looming. And this is kind of the status quo for the South in this time period. It's a status quo for the country. It says that America is very keen on race, very keen on keeping certain people a certain way. But as we're going to find out in the next lecture about foreign policy, things are about to change, and they're about to change quite a bit.